things, God will bring you. So then, banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigour are meaningless. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark, and the clouds return after the rain, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few and those looking through the windows grow dim, when the doors to the streets are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when people rise up at the sound of birds but all their songs grow faint, when people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along and desire is no longer stirred, then people go to their eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end and much study where is the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Thank you, Judith. I'd love to invite up uh, Tony Baker. Uh, Tony, as many of us will know, was a vicar at Bishop Hannington. Uh, how many years ago? Oh, a long time ago. A long time ago. <laughs> but AD rather than BC. Wonderful. Well, well, Phil and I were looking at this passage, and we were scratching our heads, and I thought, well, maybe we should give Tony a ring. So um, <laughs> we're glad that you've come down to, uh, to mm. help us to, to understand God's word. No. Um, I just want one question. Mm-hmm. I think before um, you preach to us. Um, what is exciting you about, about your walk with God, about Jesus at the moment? What is, what is God teaching you? Well, two things, very, very quickly. The first is, and this has really been an ongoing lesson through life, is the sheer faithfulness of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he does guide and he does provide. And when I was first the minister, the senior man, the rector with whom I was working, 
he wrote in the front of a book he gave, um, 1 Thessalonians 5.24, that God is faithful. And if some of you, and there are some of you, I know, who've been Christians quite a long time, like uh, Margaret and myself, uh, you will agree God is faithful. Mm -hmm. He does guide through life. You sometimes wonder how, uh, but he does. Mm -hmm. And he does provide. Mm -hmm. And above all, he keeps us believing and trusting. Whatever the ups and downs, once his spirit has been given to us, he will keep us believing in his son, the Lord Jesus. That's the first thing. The second thing is that as you get older, inevitably, um, well, you've lived more, life, more years down here uh, already than, than you've got ahead of you down here. And I think it is terribly important for me, for all of us as Christians, to know that once you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, you're in the kingdom of God, and you already have eternal life. Therefore, one day when we get transferred from here to the glory, uh, that's the fulfillment, the great installment that goes on forever of the eternal life we have now. And I think sometimes as Christians we can think, oh, I have eternal life, uh, but this life is really what matters and heaven is an extended retirement. Uh, it's quite the reverse. If you are like me, retired now, be prepared, you will not be retired in heaven. Wonderful stuff. Okay. Great, wonderful. Thank, Thank you, you for coming, Tony, and uh, we look forward Thank to hearing you. you explain to us God's word. Well, it really is a great pleasure to be here. Uh, sometimes when I was in full-time ministry, uh, when visiting ministers said how good it was to be there, I marked them down straight away because it's the sort of thing that everybody can say. But Margaret and I mean it, and we'd like to say thank you to Phil for the way that he puts up with us. If from time to time we turn up for this or that special meeting, special occasion, and especially, Phil, thank you for inviting me to preach this morning. Now, when I came to Ecclesiastes 11 and 7, 11, 7 to 12, 14, my uh, thanks were somewhat modified. <laughs> now, please, can you find that passage again? You've got the page number. It is page 678. If you don't follow, don't wish to sound rude, but I make no, have no responsibility if you lose the way. Page 678. I've got the New International Version like you, but I noticed in reading that my version is just slightly different from yours, but I don't think it matters. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, together we thank you for the vision of those who long ago now uh, had, had the vision for this church, that it would be a place where the gospel of the Lord Jesus was proclaimed and where his word was trusted and taught. And we pray that this morning by the present activity of your Holy Spirit that you will work within every mind, heart, will and life that we may come to know you more and live lives to the praise of your glory and grace. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, when I was young-ish, I think I saw everyone was this true for you, as divided into three groups. There were other children, other youngsters, to whom you related and with whom you played. There were grown-ups and there were old people. I didn't put exact ages to them, uh, any more than the preacher or the teacher, whatever he's called here, uh, does uh, in his book that we've got before us. 
The preacher, of course, may have been Solomon, but we don't really know. But I think when I was young, it didn't really occur to me that individuals somehow moved from one stage to the, to the next. Except when people started asking me, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, I didn't want to be a minister. And Margaret, my wife, of um, 52 years, I think it is now, was quite clear that she didn't want to marry a minister. Well, there you are. You see, when you are youngish, a sort of air of unreality hangs over our view of the different stages of life. But what the teacher, the preacher, is doing here is to face us with the realities of the different stages of life and, indeed, in the light of eternity. So what I'm trying to do is to share with you what I think, under God, the preacher wants us to face here as his very remarkable book, moves to a climax. And if you look at the back of your service order, you will see there are three headings. Can you find it? Phil, I think that title, Age Concern, is brilliant. Excellent. You've got your three headings there. I suspect that we shall spend more time with the third than with the first two. And I also suspect that our first two sections won't really add up until we get to section three. Now, first, the challenges of being young. Now, the writer is encouraging, remarkably, a very positive attitude. And if you thought of Ecclesiastes as a very negative book, look again. Verse seven, light is sweet and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. First part of verse 8. However many years a man may live, let him enjoy them all. Verse 9. Be happy, young man, while you're young. Let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. This is extraordinary. Verse 10. Banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body. That's all very positive stuff, isn't it? Now, you do meet some people who seem to be sort of born negative. Whatever age they are, everything is negative. And this is such a shame. Listen to what the the preacher, the teacher says here. He's positive about life. But you can think of some, can't you? Even if you had pretty reasonable school meals, they were always rubbish and trash and yuck. We're much more easily negative, certainly some of us, than positive. Many years ago, I was what was then called an assistant missioner in a student Christian mission. I was in a modern hall of residence, which I thought was really rather good. And I remember a student saying to me, he said something like this. He said, you know, this place is rubbish. And he kicked very vigorously the plaster 
just at his foot, and not surprising, the plaster fell off. Look, he said, rubbish. See, it's so easy to be negative, isn't it? Negative. But let me tell you again what he's saying, verse 7. Light is sweet, and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. One writer about Ecclesiastes says, you may not have expected the statement from a person who is often considered a pessimist. He is basically saying, life is good. It is sweet. And we do need to cultivate that attitude ourselves. I think as ministers, we can sometimes be too negative. Uh, They say, don't they, that a pessimist, uh, with the emphasis on the mist, a pessimist in the pulpit can bring a grave fog in the congregation. Now, this same positive attitude should continue through life. However many years a man may live, verse 8 again, let him enjoy them all. Now, we come back to this again later, but let me say straight away that when we are committee Christians, when Jesus Christ is Lord, we have the key that unlocks it all. All good gifts around us are sent from heaven above. Then thank the Lord, oh, thank the Lord for all his love. And that comes, as the well-instructed amongst you will know, from 1 Timothy 6.17, God who provides us with everything, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So this is all positive stuff. The challenges of being young, or indeed when we're not so young. But the preacher balances all this with the realities of the hardships of life. Second half of verse 8. Let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. And the greatest reality is the judgment of God. End of verse 9. Know that for all these things, God will bring you to judgment. So he balances the positive with the realities of the negative in this life and because not one of us will escape the judgment of God. And so the greatest need, moving to chapter 12, verse 1, is to remember your creator in the days of your youth. I do not know Hebrew, but I am told that the word for creator is plural. And the commentator calls it a plural of majesty. This is not a creator we can play around with. How could we? Remember your creator in the days of your youth. And I'm sure he uses this word, the writer, to emphasize that to this God we owe everything including life itself. When we do whatever we are called to do, we, use, we always use materials that God has given. The carpenter uses wood that he hasn't made. When parents produce a child, they, to use the right word, they procreate on behalf of the Creator. 
everything that we so-called create is using the creator's provided materials. So remember your creator in the days of your youth, says one writer. Young people so often think they are immortal. Remember your creator. What are some of the things you've embarrassingly forgotten? A short time of confession. I use a sort of leather briefcase, which the fact I use one, of course, that dates me. But one side of it, there's a sort of extra side with a zip. And I went to a meeting once. I can't remember where it was, you see. And someone, and I can't remember who, said, do you mind posting these letters for me? So I put them in the zip side to keep them away from all my papers. And then I forgot them. I do not know how many months later it was that I happened to undo the zip. And these letters looked up at me. I couldn't remember who'd given them to me. I didn't know anyone to whom they were going. What would you have done? I popped them in the post box. So if you gave me those letters, or if once you got a letter that was months late, maybe I should offer the apology. We forget things. But to forget God... Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Are you quite sure that you really are remembering your creator? Here you are in BH. You may be very positive about your friends here. You enjoy the services, the meetings, the organizations. But remember your creator in the days of your youth, and even more if you're older. Not a fleeting remembrance, and then forgetfulness again. Now, I think Remembrance Sunday is truly significant. For that's one Sunday a year. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Remember him every moment of every day. And of course we come back to that again in a few moments as to how that happens. So first, the challenges of being young or not so young. For second, we must face the realities of getting old. Remember your creator, chapter 12, verse 1, in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. I did hear John Stott, that very gifted and godly man, I heard him say this before he got as old as he did. He said, they say to me, the last chapter can be the hardest. I guess that probably was so for John Stott. I saw, not many weeks ago, a Christian who had a responsible professional job. He was a sea captain, actually. And he and his wife were converted 
here at BH. But a long time ago, before ever I was here, and I guess before any of you were here. But he was converted at BH, he and his wife. She died. He is now in a nursing home. It's a good nursing home. But when I saw him, there he is, in one chair, I suppose, most of the day, sort of hoisted up, because I suppose he's probably got problems with circulation, his legs or feet or something. He can't do much except watch the TV. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I have no pleasure in them. The reality of getting old. Run your eye down that famous passage, verses 2 to 6. They are wonderfully vivid poetry. They are moving. They are poignant. I suppose in some of these selections, which frankly I can't stick, uh, the Bible as literature, you'd find Ecclesiastes chapter 12, along with the parable of the prodigal son and Psalm 23. But what do they actually mean? Let me try this on you from a Scottish minister called George Philip. I wouldn't usually read this sort of length quote in the pulpit, but I think he says it much better than I would. By and large, he says, as we see people growing old, we see them becoming less and less. We sadly say of so many, they're only a shadow of what they once were. This is the picture in Ecclesiastes 12. In verse 2, the storm clouds are darkening the sky. Follow the passage through as you listen to this excerpt. The light is fading, the days are shortening, the winter is coming. It's a picture of twilight. The second description is much more picturesque and poetic. In verses 3 to 7, the various members of the body and the faculties are portrayed as growing weaker. The keepers of the house, the hands, begin to tremble. The strong men, the legs, are bent, and the grinders, the teeth, cease to function effectively because they are few. Well, fewer. Those who look through the windows, the eyes are dim. The doors onto the street are ears, whereby we have association and fellowship with the rest of the world, are shut. We get a little hard of hearing. The sound of the grinding is low. There seems to be a suggestion here of an old person in a room with various others all talking. He hears the general sound of conversation, but not clear words. Well, actually, that's always been true for me. It's not only the senses which are affected. Activity is also inhibited. One rises up at the sound of a bird. This may mean old people waking up very early in the morning because they don't need the same amount of sleep. I disagree profoundly with that. Or it may refer, as Shakespeare has it, to the voice of old men getting back to something of a quivering treble note like a boy's. All the daughters of song are brought low. All that we mean by the music of life becomes indistinct. These old people are afraid of height, verse 5. I'm afraid so. They are afraid of the terrors in the way. They're timid about going out. They used to like going out, but now they're reluctant to make the effort. 
and I love this closing bit, the reference to the almond tree blossom, the grasshopper dragging itself along and desire failing, gives rise, says George Philip, to so much disagreement amongst commentators that we make no comment. (laughs) That's good, isn't it? Well, I thought it's better than any way that I could put it, so now you know, or possibly not. Even if the details are uncertain, the picture is real and vivid. Here is the word of God speaking about the reality of old age. But remember, if, when, and as this becomes true for us, God knows. Here it is in Scripture. How relevant, I guess, it is for Billy Graham at the age of 99 and with Parkinson's. I think of my dad when he was dying, he was attended by a Christian GP. And the Christian GP said to my sister and myself, we know where we are going, it's just sometimes the trouble of getting there. But you see, verse 7 catches up with us all. Dust returns to the ground it came from, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. The death rate is still 100%. You can still see, apparently, Lenin in his mausoleum in Red Square in Moscow. I've not seen him there, and I don't want to see him there. And anyway, you can't see him there, because Lenin died years ago. And while we live down here, whether we're younger or older, there is always, as this passage has made clear so far, there is always this minor key to the music of life. And as we get older, the minor key can sound more and more loudly. And looked at apart from God, finally, verse 8 has it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. That's how your neighbours will probably see life. As life goes on. (coughs) Meaningless, meaningless. So there are ends to tie up. And this is not quite the end of Ecclesiastes. And I move to the third heading which I hope will shed more light on the first two. The certainties of eternity. The certainties of eternity. The teacher, the preacher, shares with us how he's laboured to say just the right thing in just the right way. Verses 9 to 11. Well, that's a lesson I guess all of us need to take on board. He warns in verse 12 of looking anywhere else to try and sort out the meaning of life. The danger of reading book after book, trying to find the answer to all our questions. (laughs) Listen to this. I got a catalogue through the post recently of books at cut price. One of the books that was was offered used to cost $16.99. Now you can get it for $5.99. It's called How to Believe by John Cottingham. Listen. 
In an effort to rescue the debate from sterile polemics, one of Britain's leading philosophers defends religious belief by drawing on insights from poetry, music, scripture, and a range of philosophical texts. He argues that belief is less about advancing a set of explanatory hypotheses than responding to certain deep psychological and moral features of our human predicament, since religious questions should engage all the mind's conceptual powers. So now you know. But you don't. Don't waste 5.99. You see, he's right, isn't he? Of making of many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. But he knows what he's been trying to say, what he has been saying. And in fact, as we'll find out now, he's writing about the certainties of eternity. The preacher is right to warn us. But if you look down this last section, it seems to end on a very downbeat note. We've had everything is meaningless in verse 8. And then that inescapable, verse 14, God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. And just before that he said, the conclusion of the matter, fear God and keep his commandments, that is the whole duty of man. And if you and I are honest, we're saying, how can we? And not only can we see life as meaningless, but we have heaped on our shoulders a burden we cannot carry, fear God and keep his commandments, and we face the judgment of God. And that will be a dreadful day. Now stop think who is this God that the writer of Ecclesiastes so often refers to as God as God in heaven chapter 5 verse 2 as the creator God chapter 12 verse 1 stop think the writer's first readers were the Israelites the people to whom the creator God in heaven had been gradually revealing himself. The God who had been dwelling amongst his people in that great tent when they came out of Egypt from slavery in the tabernacle and then in the temple in Jerusalem. And the readers of Ecclesiastes knew that in that temple God had ordained sacrifices that somehow meant their sins, their offences, were forgiven and reckoned as gone. And the Israelites who first read this book, who trusted in and lived their lives for that God, they knew that he was their committed, caring God. Now, look at verse 11 with me. They knew that he was their shepherd God. I think verse 11 is the most significant verse in the whole of Ecclesiastes. Suddenly, as it were, out of the blue, 
The writer is no longer talking about God, God in heaven or the creator God. He's talking, talking about his words being given by one shepherd, capital S. And the commentators all reckon that is definitely a reference to God. This God is the shepherd God. He's the committed, caring God. He's also the speaking God who's been speaking out his word in what we now call the Old Testament, including here in Ecclesiastes. He is the shepherd. This is the biggest surprise in the book. God is their one shepherd. He's their shepherd God. Caring, providing, forgiving, speaking. And so those believing Israelites would surely know that though judgment on the day of the Lord will be solemn, none of them, if they believed in him, would be, caring, would be, would be condemned. Psalm 23. Everybody knows Psalm 23. It's in fact one of four psalms that talks about God as shepherd. Listen to the first two and the last verse. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord. Forever. Those who know God as their shepherd God, who's provided, know that though judgment will be serious, we shall not be condemned. And listen to this from the book of Ezekiel, where God pictures himself as the shepherd of his people. And in chapter 34 and verse 23. He says this, word of prophecy. I will place over them, that's his people, one shepherd, my servant David. And he will tend them, he will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Move forward about a thousand years from what we've just been reading. That prophecy is fulfilled, is it not? In God himself coming amongst us, in person, in his son Jesus. And Jesus said, John chapter 10 verse 11, I am the good shepherd. He's the fulfillment of the prophecy. He's great David's greatest son. He's the shepherd God in person. He's the God of Ecclesiastes come down amongst us. And he shows us exactly what God is like. And his attitude to the scriptures that he had was exactly the same as the attitude of the writer of Ecclesiastes. Collected sayings given by one shepherd. That, almost incidentally, but very importantly, is I want my attitude to Scripture to be exactly the same as Jesus' attitude to Scripture. Don't you? But Jesus didn't only say, I am the good shepherd. 
he continued, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So that Jesus, God incarnate, the shepherd God, is the final substitute provided in and by God himself for the sinful, self-centered ways of rebellious human beings who, because of our rebellion against God, left to ourselves, find that life is ultimately meaningless and all such people can look forward to is the judgment of God. So if you are not yet a committed believer in the coming of the shepherd God in Jesus and haven't seen that God's provision of Jesus on the cross is your substitute so that Jesus took the wrath instead of you, if you haven't yet seen that, then God will bring every deed into judgment including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. And you need to get sorted out with the shepherd God this morning. You really do. And as we who by God's grace are Christians and go through this life, there will be both the good times, and we should be positive, but there will be the hard times. Christians don't escape the minor key, which is very important because when we're talking to someone who's thinking of becoming a a Christian or a new Christian, we must give them a true picture of the Christian life. There are great times. It's wonderful to know you're reconciled to God and God is reconciled to you. But there are hard times. And it's true whether we're believers or not. Verse 8, the days of darkness will be many. And for many Christians in many parts of the world, there are many, many days of darkness. I think it's inexcusable if we as Christians are not praying for those who are going through very dark days in the prisons and torture chambers of this world. But in and through the shepherd God... Just look that word straight, just look at it straight in verse 11. One shepherd suddenly breaks in in this book. When the shepherd God, who came and died for the sheep, in spite of the things that we can't understand and don't like, we are safe. And we look forward in humble confidence to the day, verse 7, chapter 12, when the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. May I mention dear Beryl White by name? What a service on Friday. Wasn't it great? Because you see, she was able to look forward to that day and her spirit returned to God who gave it. So when we go... We don't face condemnation. God will bring every deed into judgment. But for the Christian, where the wrath has been taken by God the Son on the cross, 
The judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10, is for evaluation, but not condemnation. And when we're in the glory, the minor key finally goes, and the major key becomes crescendo. There was um, a generation and a half ago an evangelist called Lindsay Glegg. I'm sure he knew times of joy and times of light and times of darkness in his life and ministry. When he knew he was dying and that he was in the hands of the shepherd God, he wrote a postcard to a friend. Hands up, any of you who've heard this little story before. Oh, Margaret puts her hand up. I wonder how she heard it before. If you heard it from me when I was vicar here, you've forgotten it. This is what he wrote on the postcard. And just off, we'll see you there. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, our Good Shepherd, this is a part of your word which we really need. We thank you for the realism of it, the joys of life, but the days of darkness as well. But thank you that everything is different ultimately and eternally when we know that the shepherd God is revealed in Jesus and in his death on the cross. We know, dear Lord, that even when we're believers, we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Help us to live in the light of that. But we thank you that we're saved and safe in him, though there will be that, as it were, end-of-term report. Help us now to live as those who do find their joy in you and in the days of joy and gladness that you do bring, but who remain constant in days of darkness. We pray for anyone here who's going through a particularly dark time that they will yet know that ultimately Jesus is the good shepherd and the light of the world. And we pray in his name. Amen.